Uh, my name is Ryan Scherzinger, Senior Outreach Associate for APA, and welcome to Tuesdays at APA. Uh, an after-work lecture series APA holds one Tuesday a month, whereby practicing planners, researchers, and professionals from allied fields discuss innovative ideas or present their latest projects. Uh, tonight's speaker is Peter Katz, who's been a leader in advancing innovative approaches to community planning for more than two decades. Uh, Katz played a key role in shaping uh, the new urbanism movement as founding executive director uh, of the Congress for the, uh, Congress for the New Urbanism. Uh, he's also author of a seminal 1994 book on the subject, The New Urbanism Toward an Architecture of Community. In 1991, Katz instigated and co-edited the Awani Principles, one of the first statements of sustainable community uh, building practices, practices uh, which has been endorsed by hundreds of municipalities in the U.S. and Canada. Katz was a co-founder of the Form-Based Codes Institute and is a member of the National Charette Institute's Board of Advisors. He's also a consultant uh, in the areas of community development and real estate marketing. Uh, before we start, I ask that you please hold all the questions until the end of the presentation. And now please join me in welcoming tonight's speaker, Mr. Peter Katz. Thank you, Peter. Exactly. Good evening. <clears throat> Thank you all for braving the elements. Is the sound okay? I was hearing a little echo before. Um, for braving the element, I enjoyed tonight because I get to speak in my hiking shoes, which I don't often get to do. Um, but uh, let me grab the remote control. And the first few slides are really just putting pictures to uh, some of the biographical things mentioned. My wife is always on me because when I'm speaking, I'm usually speaking about things that inter interest me from an advocacy standpoint. And she says, be sure to remind them that you are a consultant, you participate in teams, you do this for a living. Uh, and so, uh, but first, let me touch on the advocacy things. And my, my business card says three things. Plan, communicate, and innovate. My background is actually as a graphic designer. I didn't study planning. So all of you probably know much more about the nuts and bolts and fine points of planning. But I have picked up a few things along the way. And in some ways, I sort of use the fact that I didn't come up through the system to give me a fresh set of eyes at looking at things that don't quite seem right. And so I make a point of asking a lot of dumb questions and get some interesting answers and put things together. So back in 1991, when I was interested in going to planning school, um, I did some research and I realized that the people that I was most interested in, uh, they weren't called new urbanists then. They were called a variety of things, neo-traditional and so on, that I couldn't really learn about that in planning school. So I decided to write a book. And I traveled around the country visiting their offices, going through their drawers, asking questions about what's this project, what's that project, and learned some interesting things. Um, this article in Newsweek magazine, a 13-page cover story, came out of the publicity efforts related to my book. And it was really the first publication that Americans read about these concepts and came to the realization having the biggest house in the neighborhood on a cul-de-sac maybe wasn't the thing they really wanted and really brought in some new thinking. Uh, and as was mentioned, I was for a time the founding executive director of the Congress for New Urbanism and had a chance to work closely with HUD, setting up the, uh, their involvement, um, new, uh, the New Urbanism connection to the HOPE 6 program and so on. Uh, and this is um, our charter in uh, Charleston when it was introduced. Uh, also mentioned Form-Based Code Institute. About 10 years into this, I realized that if new urbanism was ever going to prevail and smart growth, that it probably needed a different regulatory approach, that the tool of zoning probably wasn't the best tool for the job, 
There were some good communities being created using zoning, but far and away the better ones were generally being done with this thing. It wasn't called form-based coding at the time, but it was a, a different approach to regulating the build-out of communities. And I certainly invite you to attend uh, some of the Form-Based Code Institute courses, visit the website, a lot of good reference material here uh, to explain what are form-based codes. And more recently, I've gotten very intrigued with the whole fiscal side of community planning. And um, uh, that's the focus of what we're going to talk about tonight. I guess one could simply refer to the title of tonight's presentation as Follow the Money. And it's going to come up in a couple different ways and a couple different flavors. Um, but again, first a quick review of the situation. Uh, you're reading about communities going bankrupt, Detroit, Stockton, San Bernardino, a number of different communities around the country, various shapes and sizes. This is Vallejo, one of the first in Northern California. And what's been happening over the last few years is that the two big sources of income for municipalities, state aid and property taxes, they've generally been going up in the time since World War II, and occasionally when one was down, the other was up, but rarely had both been down, as they started to do in 2009. And it's created a really rough situation for local government. This information is from a publication uh, uh, from the, the Pew Trusts, and uh, a very good study called The Local Squeeze. And it's called The Local Squeeze because one of the problems in local government is if you run short of money, you can't just go out and raise taxes. There's usually lots and lots of rules in place that prevent communities from doing that. And you see a chart that shows uh, the different states and what the limitations are in terms of raising taxes. So it's a, it's a true squeeze. And um, what they're seeing in their report is even small declines in revenue create huge challenges for local government. Um, government's going to have to change the way they do business. And those of you who are in the public sector, and by the way, on that note, how many folks, how many are, do work for local government here tonight? A few, not the majority. Though. The rest of you are consultants? Okay, yes, I see hands. Okay, great. Um, but, you know, a huge hit. Half a million jobs, more than the population of Sacramento, California, a government town, uh, were lost in the recent downturn, which was huge. You know, I went into government because I thought I would find stability there. And... Uh, uh, I experienced a, a lot of instability during this era. So things are changing. Now, the, um, the, 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 the part that my wife wanted you to tell me about was, again, not the, not the advocacy side, not the innovation, but, you know, she says, Peter, tell them what you do for a living. So here's my short paid commercial announcement. Uh, I help to get complicated yet worthy projects entitled. And for all the talk about TOD, in the last decade, you know, the, the kind of the, the real estate boom of the mid-2000s, there were really only a handful approved in the country. There was one in Atlanta called Lindbergh Station. Uh, this is one in California, in Contra Costa County, one of the BART system stations. It was Pleasant Hill Station. It's been renamed Contra Costa Center. It was a 20-acre parking lot that was the last piece of a whole redevelopment project um, along uh, Interstate 680, the road from San Francisco up to Sacramento. And basically, it was redeveloped, that parking lot was redeveloped as this TOD, this 1,200-car garage was doubled um, to 2,500. So, you know, it's a kind of a pure TOD in the sense that it was built out in the middle of suburban sprawl, mostly parking lots and low density. 
and we had a charrette, we engaged the community. This came after 20 years of basically NIMBYs holding up the project. And you can see I'm standing here with a nice head of dark hair and a beard in the background. This is actually a local planner here in the, the Maryland region, a fellow named Seth Harry, who was part of the design team, who's a, a great talent that I've worked with over the years. So we're importing DC metro talent out to the Bay Area. Uh, and this is what got built. And these are not expensive buildings. These are simple stucco over wood frame buildings, the same kind you see along interstates all over the country. Uh, but because they were arranged around a public square, uh, because they made a transit station far more functional in terms of being able to create a, a local stock of housing as opposed to just being a park and ride, it changed the way people live in this community. And I'm very proud to have been associated with it. It, it leased up quickly in a down market. It won an APA national award for implementation. So um, anyway, so that was, the, that was the ad. Now, I have worked in local government. Um, when I was 50 years old, I decided to start a family. And uh, uh, it was also the beginning of the recession, uh, the deep, deep recession. And uh, I took a job as a staff planner in Oceanside, California. I learned to write staff reports. And you know, I didn't know any of this stuff when I wrote my book. I actually learned how places got created. Uh, in, and, and entitled. And so it was a kind of an eye-opener for me. Um, about two and a half years later, I was uh, recruited to be the head of smart growth and urban planning in Sarasota, Florida. Worked there for about two and a half years and then moved up to the D.C. region where I worked for a very short time in Arlington, Virginia as planning director. Um, rarely do planners move around the country this way. And in the process of doing it, you learn a phenomenal amount about how differently things operate from region to region. Huge differences. And of course, everybody in each region think theirs is the way it works everywhere, but it's just not the case. And uh, so that's been a great, a great window. I kind of look at this time as, as, a, as my period of being an embedded journalist uh, on the front lines of, uh, of planning. But it was really fascinating. And so some of what I'm going to be talking about tonight really comes out of that. Now, recently I had the chance to write the lead article in a special issue of Government Finance Review. This is the magazine that goes out to CFOs in local government. And <coughs> talked about what you're going to read about tonight in the magazine. I have a, a PDF I can send. And there was, I think, a link to a PDF in the, in the notice for this. Uh, but there's a number of really great articles in this issue, uh, including a few that weren't in the PDF. So I'm happy to forward this if, if people want to contact me. But we did a, a little study in Sarasota County, a $3,000 study that's gotten a huge amount of play all over the country, everything from the Wall Street Journal to National Resources Defense Council's blog. Uh, Reuters picked it up, and it ran in Europe and Canada. It's quite, quite a lot of play because in this story, there's something for everybody. For the tree huggers, there's a story that malls are not a great thing. For business, there's a story that, um, that a lot of what what pays for our taxes isn't, isn't really, or what we think pays for tax revenue isn't really, and so on. And the stories continue to have life. Smart Growth America, you know, all of this stuff ran in 2010. Smart Growth America in their Building Better Budgets project reprised a lot of the information, really confirmed what we learned uh, in their 2013 report. And I, I commend you to this, a very good study. But I'm going to take you through the study quickly, and then... Um, talk about some, some other um, uh, repercussions and implications. So I came to work in Sarasota in 2008, just as the world was falling off a cliff. 
fiscally. And um, my county manager said, you know, we've really got a story to tell our citizens about what it is that pays the bills. And they need to understand why new construction is so important for our revenue. Uh, now, the study we did looked at all kinds of different properties in the county. Um, and the <coughs> first thing we learned is that um, agricultural land pays $3 an acre uh, per year. And of course, the bar is so thin you can't even see it here. But there's another value this has to our citizens, the ability to drive out of town and see that within five minutes is really great. Uh, it's one of the differences between the west coast of Florida and the east coast. Uh, as you move up the scale, residential out in the county, uh, filling an acre, whether it's one house or multiple houses, brings in about $3,800 a month. Uh, multifamily, about double that at $7,800 a month. And in the city, single-family residential with a higher level of services that you get in a city over the county. This is, was our house in Sarasota. It's earning an average of just over $8,000, about $8,150. And now, the first big surprise in the study is that you would think that big box would be paying a lot more per acre per year in property taxes. But when you actually do the numbers, you realize that the difference between a typical house in the city of Sarasota and a Walmart just built in the southern part of the county was only about $150 a year. <coughs> and so that's tiny. That's nothing. And when our elected officials saw that, their jaws dropped because they just assumed that, you know, that as they were sweating bullets getting these things approved, earning the scorn of their constituents, like, why do you want all these Walmarts? Oh, because it brings revenue in. But in fact, what they realized, at least in terms of property taxes, we'll talk about sales tax in a minute, it didn't bring much more than typical single-family houses, which usually are incrementally approved and never raise any issues. Um, as you move up through the various commercial offerings, including a, a very lucrative Burger King out by the interstate, and our best mall, Southgate Mall, is earning about three times the Walmart at 21752 per acre per year. Again, property taxes only. We'll talk about sales tax in a little while. And that's what the mall looks like. It's a well-built building with nice landscaping, nice site amenities, and again, remember that property taxes are a function of the assessed value, which is linked to what properties like to sell for. It's not something that the assessor makes up. I mean, there are some areas of the country where there's lots of things built into the tax base to charge more for commercial or less for. But in Sarasota, our taxes were fairly flat based on the value of the building. Um, so we're going to change the chart now. We're going to take our highest earning property, the Southgate Mall, which formerly, in the previous slide, it was zooming across the chart. So we're going to compress these all now to just be this wide. And we're going to run our chart out to 900,000. Uh, any idea if our best mall is earning 21,000, what could possibly be earning 900,000? Any idea? If you've read the article, you know. Well, mixed use. And we have three flavors. We have low rise, about two to four stories mid-rise around 9.10, and high-rise for Sarasota at about 17 stories. So here's one of those high-rise buildings, and again, the chart shows it at about 900,000, and the explanation is fairly simple. These are million-dollar condos, and there's about seven or eight per floor, and you're stacking one on top of the other. So simple geometry is telling you why these things are yielding at such a high rate.
um, you know, again, you've got the footprint, and it's just it's just sheer addition as you go up, uh, which is a pretty cool deal, you know. And the idea is that government pays for the horizontal infrastructure, private developers pay for the vertical infrastructure. So it's in government's interest to induce the private sector to invest as much as possible going vertical. So if you start to look at the composite of all these different things, the, you know, my house and the big box being very close to one another. This is a building built in the 1920s, two-story building. This is an example of one of our, our low-rise bars at about 91,000. That's earning out at about 10 times the rate of the Walmart. And the top floor sits empty on that building. That's the kind of building that in a lot of towns people say, oh, it's obsolete, it's garbage, tear it down. But wait a minute, when it's well located, it's earning at a very high rate. And here's a building, and then this is again one of the top earners, earning on this chart about 800000 Now, this was a presentation I gave to our electeds, a handful of friends. Finally, it was picked up by, by New Urban News, was going to publish it, and I thought, I better go back and check these numbers because I don't really trust them. So I did. I went upstairs to the finance department. I sat down with Karen Fertangelo, and we crunched the numbers, and lo and behold, we screwed up. We made a mistake. The mistake was that instead of being worth 900000 we didn't realize it, but this building sits only on two-thirds of an acre, so the actual per acre yield was $1.2 Okay, so now you take, take that Walmart, that little tiny sliver, imagine how many of those you need to equal that one building on two-thirds of an acre. In fact, you need 145 acres of Walmarts to equal that one building. That's the number. So uh, a couple more comparisons. So here's that building. It's 1350 Main. Again, it's not one acre. It's 0.67. Um, and again, just county taxes alone. It's paying city taxes on top of it. So this study rolls in both the city and the county taxes. But basically, it generates as much taxes as the 21-acre Walmart and our best mall at 34 acres. Combined, they are... 55.4, they're only earning 1.145, whereas this one building's earning close to 1.5 million. There's a delta of 350,000 that's contained in the difference there. So that was pretty amazing stuff. And we're sitting there looking at those numbers, scratching our heads going, can this be real? Uh, so um, apparently it was and it is, but what about sales tax? You know, you're all... I'm sure thinking that, you know, Walmart's got to be earning a lot of money. Well, as it happens in Sarasota County, our sales tax is less than a quarter of our property tax. Property tax being the green at $222 million, sales tax being about $60 million, and that money goes up to Tallahassee, and only a fraction of it comes back, and different communities get different proportions. But let's just say that we, um, we decided that we're tired of paying sales tax. And we would like to earn that same revenue with real estate. And so think about this for a minute. If that one building is generating over a million dollars on 0.67 of an acre, and we build 60 of those, and it seems like a lot of building. That's going to be Manhattan. That's going to be horrible, right? But as it happens, that amount of real estate um, actually fits in about a sixth of our downtown, 100 acres. Our downtown is about 600 acres. It's about this much area, and you still have room for streets, for a town square. Um, you know, you've got room to breathe. It's, you know, you're not being compressed like a sardine. And in fact, if you look at downtown Sarasota, there are some towers there, but mostly it's one and two-story buildings. 
people are mentally geared to the idea of tall buildings because you're downtown. So if there's any area where people would accept that kind of density, it would be here. Uh, now, St. Petersburg added, and that's a city about an hour to the north, a little bigger city than Sarasota, but it added about the amount of real estate we're talking about in the last boom. And all that new real estate didn't hurt the place at all. In fact, there were more people to shop in galleries, eat in restaurants. It became a more lively downtown. Uh, so, you know, even though some of Sarasota citizens would be horrified at all that, that square footage, it, it's not the end of the world. So what about the cost side? Again, those of you who are, you know, thinking uh, uh, in terms of economics, fair question. Well, this is a very old study dating from 1989. The numbers have been uh, brought up to 2008 numbers to be equivalent to the, um, the rest of it. But a typical downtown unit in this study done for Brookings by Duncan Associates showed that that downtown unit from a cost standpoint to local government is just under $10,000, $9,200. The suburban unit out at the edge is about $23,000. So almost, uh, you know, almost three times, not quite. Big difference. When you cross-cut now the cost and the revenue and you try to figure out what's the payback and you compare three downtown buildings of about 197 units valued at about $193 million, so roughly a million dollars a unit, sitting on just 1.9 acres, just under two acres, compare that to another development, about t a tenth the value, 18.9 million, 357 units on 30 acres. Terms of payback to the county? Well, as it happens, the first year, the three buildings downtown pay back fully a third of their costs. And this one, only 2% of its costs. Roll it forward for the life of the loan, and it is a loan, by the way, that, that taxpayers are making to the developer for the privilege of, of enabling them to build their development. Basically, the downtown stuff is paid back. Taxpayers have their money back to reinvest it in another project, and the one out on the highway is taking 42 years, and that's without interest. So that was kind of an eye-opener. Um, and again, I, I, I gave this presentation to the five county commissioners, as we're going through this, their jaws are just dropping lower and lower. And I'm envisioning that they're never going to approve another sprawl project again. Tune in for that story. Uh, but so here's what we're talking about out at the edge. 42 years. And when I moved to Florida, which I don't know, anybody lived in Florida ever? One or two people. Well, the big surprise you have is when you sign up for pest control. Because uh, they come out to your house and they give you a quote and it's a high number. And then for us, about a week later, we're um, kind of reeling from the shock of what we're paying to deal with all these you know, rodents and termites and this and that. And we start seeing these little wings everywhere in our house. And we call up the, you know, figured, oh, well, we're covered. We, you know, we got the pest control stuff. Call up the guy and he comes out and he says, those are drywood termites. Your coverage is for the wet termites. That's going to be another oh, uh, $3,000 and we're going to have to tent your house, by the way, before we can cover it. And that's going to be... A, you know, a couple thousand. I mean, it's just these ridiculous numbers, and then we have to leave the house for the weekend, and they put a big tent around it. Um, really scary. Bugs are eating your property all the time, even in concrete buildings. Ours was a concrete block house, but it's the wood frame inside that they eat. So um, I would be concerned uh, on a property stated to last 42 years. So why is this the case? Why the rapid payback? Well, Downtown versus the suburban edge. If you think about the cost of infrastructure, uh, 
Here's a street that's been there for 100 years. There are moving cars, parked cars. This is the new building that went in. Um, I showed you before. There are people dining uh, by the side of the, the street, uh, enjoying a wonderful meal, a bottle of wine. There's waiters and waitresses earning tips. Here's a brand new street just built for those 357 units and these three office buildings. And I stood on the median taking this photo for about four minutes on a Saturday morning at 11 o'clock and not a single car went by. So that's not really well-used infrastructure. Whereas here, at the same time of day, a different week uh, on a Saturday, again, the place is bustling. It's enabling lots of things to happen. There's a whole ecology of uses that are generated by that street. Uh, but again, you know, the takeaway here is not go out and build a bunch of tall buildings. It's make sure you've got a market. And because Sarasota, the city, did a wonderful streetscape program about 15 years before, and the trees were getting established, and there were some great restaurants, very walkable, people wanted to live there. You know, usually the gold standard in Florida for high-rise is you've got to have unobstructed blue water views. But this building is actually set back a few blocks. Some of the units have water views, but most of them, it's really about the street. It's the same thing as Paris. The amenity is the urbanism at the street level, not the far-off view, uh, which rarely do you have that because buildings tend to be fairly uniform in height in a, a Paris or a San Francisco. So, um, you know, the interesting thing is that this kind of urbanism, this two, three, and four-story urbanism of a great walkable street, uh, in terms of a lot of people who live up north in the Clevelands and the Chicagos and suffering through a winter like the one we had, as people retire, there's an almost infinitive supply of, of folks who will want to have that experience. Uh, and the interesting thing is that when you compare the, the earning power of this building at about 91,000 per acre per year versus our best mall with Macy's and Saks Fifth Avenue and Dillard's, very best mall is still at 21,000. And you can't, those of you who know real estate economics know you can't just push retail forever. At a certain point, you start diluting out your per square foot sales and you create a lot of underperforming retail. But residential, when you're talking about people choosing a new place to live for their uh, 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 retirement years, you know, you give them a great street like that in Florida and, and they'll be coming down all day long. So where do you put these high value places? Well, as I said before, we've got a great downtown, 600 acres, mostly currently one and two stories. You can build there with a minimum of pushback from citizens. Um, but interestingly, again, I'm working for Sarasota County. This is the city. This is a different municipality. This is a different um, approving body. And my county manager would watch their uh, hearings on closed circuit television and come in the next day pounding the desk going, all they talk about is impacts. They never talk about revenue. And of course, we get a lion's share of the revenue. So there's this disconnect. You know, the city's dealing mostly with, with the impacts. The taxes come to us and the services come back to them. But, but it's a problem. It's a problem when you ha don't have aggregated city-county government. That's another subject. But to us in the county, you know, the zoning map of the city, that's what they see on their zoning map. What we see is gray. And we see that for all the municipalities in the county. Their holes punched in our land use plan, we want to find places on our colorful future land use map that we can be earning these high revenues. So we look at the map and we say, well, you know, we don't have downtown, the city's got that, we don't have this, we don't have that. Aha, 
maybe we can put stuff on the big arterials that we've spent all that money on. Well, not really because we've already seen that the Walmart, the big box, which is the only thing that really wants to be out here, doesn't earn out any better than houses. So why would we do that? So perhaps the thing we might want to do is transit, build along transit lines. And at the time, we were planning a BRT system with some advantageous federal funding. Uh, that's a picture of Portland. Our citizens probably wouldn't, wouldn't like the way that looked, too tall, too gray. Uh, but they might go for something like this. And good urban design can actually achieve the same densities um, without going to ridiculous heights. So that would be one approach. And to the right is a land use plan from Hillsborough County, about an hour to the north in Tampa, that was proposing you know, building along TOD and TND lines. Um, but um, for a, a variety of reasons, um, you know, the world changed. We headed into a recession. I'm not quite sure where the BRT plan is these days. We'll, we'll leave the Sarasota story there for just a moment. Uh, and we'll look nationally. You know, is there something about Sarasota that made it unique and special and different? Well, here's a map of Asheville, North Carolina, downtown. And this is done by Joe Minicosi, who is the fellow who actually did the research that I've just been showing you. Um, Joe's a, a good friend and colleague who lives in Asheville. What this chart shows, the height is not the height of the buildings. It's actually the dollars per, per square foot of revenue generation of the buildings. So you see there's some rather tall but very narrow spikes. These are actually sort of anomalies. Um, but here's a building built in the, actually let me start with this one. A hotel built in the mid 80s. Uh, it's $24 million on 5.2 acres. The reason so much land is because they were required to park all their units for a hotel uh, on their property uh, with fairly stringent parking regulations. In the 90s, they, they got rid of all the downtown parking regulation. They said, we don't care. People are walking, they're riding bikes, they're taking buses. Uh, just build your building. Look at the revenue that returns. Imagine if everything in downtown returned at that rate. I mean, there's some buildings built in the 20s and 30s that don't have parking because it wasn't required, that are earning reasonably well. But imagine the millions of dollars that would flow into the civic coffers of every building was built that way. So showing the information in this way is really powerful for local government because they see the fiscal effects of their own rules. What they mostly experience in a zoning hearing is people coming and complaining, it's too dense, they're going to be parking all over the place, I won't have room to park. Um, there's no pushback from a fiscal standpoint. It's all about impacts. So the natural tendency is to make things smaller and push them back from the street until government starts looking at things this way and they go, ah, aha, maybe that's not such a good idea. So you really need these two countervailing forces. You need somebody, you know, the impacts are, are real, but you also need to be looking at revenues. Uh, now, Joe has worked all around the US by now. He's sort of racking up these dots all over the country. And one particular study he did for the Sonoran Institute with, uh, I think, uh, a dozen communities in the Rocky Mountain states, uh, nine of them, here they are listed. And so just looking at one Grand Junction, Colorado, again, you see the same thing. Basically, the green bars are mixed use. Uh, there's one strong commercial property in here. Uh, but it's a similar pattern. At the bottom of the chart, uh, again, order of magnitude is lower, but uh, um, city residential, $1,000. Kmart, two to 268. You move further up the big mall on the outskirts of town, $3,000 an acre. 
downtown building, two stories, earning out at 34,000. You know, many, many times, 15 times, uh, no, not quite 15, many more times, 10 times the, the, the return of the mall. Um, and again, this isn't the same mall, but it gives you an idea of the scale of things that Joe's dealing with out in Colorado. We're not talking about tall buildings. Uh, one of the tallest in the study is this one here, uh, bringing in $230,000 of property tax, while the Kmart, uh, Walmart, and Costco combined are $6,000. So just huge numbers, really dramatic, thousands of percentage difference. And this is the pattern that he saw all over these Rocky Mountain states. Um, I won't bother reading that, it's fairly evident. And those of you who like to download this stuff, quick, write it down. I'll come back to it at the end if you need to. But that's where you get the information. So I've been talking about numbers for the last whatever, but I'm a smart growther. I'm my, I came into this because of my love of design, my love of great places, not because I like number crunching. Uh, in fact, I'm not very good at the number crunching. But you know what's happening, stepping back, you know, my, my book is 20 years old. It's still in print. You can still buy it. But you know, the project's kind of old. What we've seen is that around the country, at most, at any given time, you see one or two smart growth or new urbanist projects. They're usually the result of a lot of public attention. There'll be a charrette. A, you know, a design team will come to town. A lot of effort. You, know, you read all about it, and, and it's a big, big deal. But the problem is, is, at that rate, we're never going to deal with the problems we've got in this country. It's, just, it's a boutique operation. I hate to say it. They're my friends. I wish it wasn't so. We need a way to deal with all this stuff, these places that nobody cares about, these miles and miles of endless suburban crud and strips and, and all this. And I keep thinking if there was some simple silver bullet that could do that, that could in a lot of ways achieve the same thing that smart growth tries to do, but rather than dictating design and all these nuances, just sort of express it in simple dollar terms. You know, you have to hit this mark or you don't get approved. So I started thinking about that and uh, came back to this number here, the payback period. You know, people get real itchy about government dictating too much, but when government's actually extending a loan to the private sector the way they are when it comes to the infrastructure that it builds, um, it should have some control over the payback. You know, impact fees were an attempt to deal with that, you know, but they only cover capital costs, they don't cover maintenance. So what if we took this and we mandated a maximum payback period. And we say that, uh, you know, well, it's not going to be three and it's not going to be 42, but what if it's somewhere in between? We call it a fiscal impact quotient. I like it because FIQ, it's like IQ test. Um, it's the number of years required to pay back the investment. And the idea is if we had a standard methodology for calculating it, but we let each municipality set its own level based on its need for payback, you know, if you want to support the, you know, sprawl developers, great. You know, make it 40 years. But if you want to see your money back earlier, you know, maybe it's 5 or 10. Uh, but let's just say you, you, you assume 10. Now, this gets a little complicated. And if you want the full, the full rundown of how this all works, this is the article for you. I'll, I'll spare you all that, even though this is probably a technical group tonight. But uh, <coughs> so... Let's just say we can't really predict 10 years right on the nose, but we could predict a range. So maybe we said, uh, we'll give you out to 15 years, but if our numbers show that uh, it's going to take you 13, 
we're going to ask you to buy down those three years, down to t like, like when, you, when you have a, a frequent flyer status, and, and this year you didn't quite fly enough to earn Premier, but United sends you a letter, and you can send them $75, and they'll reinstate you as Premier. Same basic idea. Buy it down, and then if it turns out that government was wrong, and you did earn back after nine years, great. You know, government refunds you the money. If it turns out that, they were, that, that you were wrong, you know, perhaps government eats the difference. But, you know, the point is, is it, 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 it deals with that fudge factor. <coughs> and there are lots of other things that are, are taken up in the, the, the magazine. How does this relate to existing zoning? Um, you know, does zoning go away? Blah, blah, blah. All of it's in here. But basically this idea of introducing a new metric, is, is that's sort of the big idea of, of bringing to the approval process the idea that you have to score at a certain level or your project doesn't get evaluated. The, the government just has to say, look, we're tired of writing out checks. Uh, you know, we're not just going to build huge high-rises, but, but there's a bell curve here of properties. You know, s most are going to earn in the middle. There are going to be some big winners. There are going to be some absolute dogs. We want to cut off the dogs at one end of the bell curve. That's what we're trying to do. So it's a new metric. Now, when I think about a new metric, I'm taken back to my childhood. And as a kid, I loved cars. And I would ask my dad when I'd see a shiny car come by, I'd say, Dad, how fast does that car go, that Pontiac Bonneville? And he'd make up a number, tell me something. I used to read about the land speed record at the Bonneville Salt Flats and, and uh, Daytona Beach floor. I just thought it was cool as a kid. Uh, and then all of a sudden, one day, as I was growing up in 1973, the world changed. And suddenly, miles per hour was not the key metric. What people focused on was miles per gallon. That was back in 1973. Here we are, how many years later? 50, 40 years later? 50? So miles per gallon became the important metric. We learned about Volkswagen, a happy little car to put us in a better mood. GM tried, Ford tried to make an economy car. They, they struggled. Um, Japanese did better. GM uh, is finally getting with the program, with the Volt. Uh, you know, this is something people talk about when you go to cocktail parties. Say, oh, you know, how many miles does your Prius get? Well, we've got the, the super Prius. Ours does better. And nobody talks about miles per hour. You know, it's sort of, yes, in theory it's important, but how many places in the world can you actually drive that Maserati at its full capacity? Um, not many places. So I'm thinking that this FIQ as a way to evaluate places, and again, the key is it's got to be based on absolutely objective information. If it's anything that can, you know, in environmental impact reports out in California, you know, all these things are always based on assumptions. There, there's fiscal neutrality statements. It becomes a, a, a dueling consultants. And it gets so complicated that government can't even understand the numbers. So, you know, the, the applicant hires a consultant, staff hires a consultant. All this money gets thrown at it. Nobody really understands. You know, give us something objective like the way your mortgage resets. You know, you can look up the, you know, the 30-year treasury bill in the New York Times the day your mortgage resets, and there it is in print. So we need something like that. Now, what I mentioned before that when I presented this initially to our elected officials, their jaws just dropped. You know, holy cow. And I thought at that moment that they were never going to approve another sprawl development again. And <laughs> a little naive, perhaps. Um, and at that point, you know, my boss, Jim Lay, and I, we kind of realized we're in a suburban county. That at the end of the day, I mean, they, they, they wanted, they liked the idea of being a smart growth county, but they just didn't really have the equipment to get there. 
And so, um, you know, uh, we proceeded to get a lot of press for this report. Um, and then ultimately I moved up here, and I thought that D.C. region would be a much more fertile ground for these ideas. Um, I learned a little differently. There's a thing called incentive zoning that I learned about that should be, should be really with this. I mean, the idea, incentive zoning is really all about capturing this tax base from these large buildings and really working in that thing. Okay, but there's some nuance about how it works that, and it took me a while to get my brain around it, that's really sort of pernicious. Um, and I'll try to explain it. It's a great, and by the way, I'm showing pictures of Arlington. I worked in Arlington. I have huge respect for Arlington and their ability to get smart growth on the ground. So you're, you might detect in some of what I'm about to say some things that sound a little negative. I want to temper that with the fact that you know, our, there's probably no other community in America that knows how to get smart growth on the ground like Arlington does. Okay? But there's a flip side to it that I learned about. Okay, now remember tonight's theme, follow the money. Okay, so I'm going to take a, a, a mythical community, not Arlington, not anywhere in the D.C. region, um, and I'm going to examine this. Uh, I believe that incentive zoning is actually a fool's paradise because it seems to be delivering a lot of cool things, but in fact it's a bit problematic. So one of the things you find in a community like Arlington, like Bethesda, is you find a lot of places that are very close to where tall buildings exist where you have very humble bungalows, small buildings, that are, um, you know, really sweet and great scale, wonderful places to live. Um, and people like that. They value that. And so one of the reasons why a, an elected official might not want to push the zoning really high is because people who live in those places want to have a comfort level that they're protected, that I'm not going to get demolished and replaced by a 12-story building. They're not thinking about their property values. They're thinking about their quality of life. And that's important. Now, what... Some communities in the D.C. region do is they'll have an alternative review process that will go much higher than the height limit of those buildings. So let's say the height limit in a neighborhood is you know, two, three, four stories. After special review, people are building 12, 15-story buildings. I mean, really high. Well, what's happening is there's a voluntary contribution being paid. Lots of different names for it. Exactions, extractions. I was at the dentist today. Um, uh, uh, proffers, all kinds of different terms for it. But the basic idea is, is that this increment of, of money, a check that gets written, voluntarily, mind you, by a developer, they go through a special two or three year process, lots of different review by the neighbors and different folks. And, and as part of it, there's a negotiation that takes place that enables them to build this tall building uh, and money comes into local government. Okay, now, in all likelihood, when you've got this combination of two, three, four story buildings with the occasional, you know, 12 or 10 or 9-story building, you've got a kind of an average of about a 6, 7-story place. There's a kind of an aggregate height that is starting to feel like a norm for the neighborhood. Now, every now and then, some developers just say, I don't want to go through it. I can't spend two years. My bank won't let me have the money for two years. I've got to get a return more quickly. And they will opt for as of right. And you can often tell that when you drive around because that's the new building that still has the old power lines. Because one of the first things they ask developers to do with this special review is, well, of course, you're going to pay to bury your power lines. Um, but, you know, so you'll see buildings like this that are still, you know, nice, new urbanist. I mean, they might come up to the sidewalk and do good things, but they're not as high. So if you think about that, though, for every one of those buildings that, that captured that increment here, 
going up, there's another group of buildings where they said, we're not going to play, where they're actually much lower than what the norms for the neighborhood ought to be. So in, in a way, this is canceling that out. Okay, maybe not one to one. That's so I'm thinking about this a little more. Now, the other thing about this that's kind of interesting is, again, if you look at the aggregate community, you've got a handful of buildings in the last five years that have gotten approved, that have gone through this brain damage, they've paid the voluntary contribution. These buildings are fully leased. They are trading for very high value. When they sell a building like this, the, the owner of it gets a really great price. But the curious thing is that that's really only the buildings that have gone through this process in the last three or four years. You've also got a whole lot of lots that look like this, that, that you know, might look like this, and they might just be normal one and two story buildings that are, that are just, you know, they're not quite ready for redevelopment. They're, they're what I would call undeveloped and underdeveloped lots. Well, if you think about the math, there's probably hundreds of those. And if you think about the fact that these people, when they know they're going to write out a check for several million dollars, that affects the price of the land. So if it's a $5 million site, they know they're going to have to write out a check for $2 million. That comes right out of the land cost, and it means that it's now a $3 million site. And that check gets written only the year that they redevelop. But every single year, all of these lots, these undeveloped and underdeveloped lots, are basically trading at a discount. Okay, I got a little ahead of myself. So it's a fool's paradise because the undeveloped and underdeveloped land now sells at a discount. And because it sells at a discount, it also appraises at a discount. And what that means is that the municipality's tax base is depleted year after year by some considerable percentage. Every single year, not just the year it gets redeveloped, but every single year it gets reduced. So, this, so that when the, you know, when the elected official says, look at all these great things I brought to town. You know, we're getting uh, $15 million to help build this park. And, you know, as it happens, the park's actually there. What it's going to build is an aquatic center that one of the elected officials is really excited about. He used to be a competitive swimmer. Um, you know, these are great things that give elected officials bragging rights. Look at what we brought. Look, look what we got from those greedy, evil developers um, that's going to pay for things you want. And, and it's really good at getting new urbanism and smart growth on the ground because basically it creates a pile of money that you can use if the neighborhood's being resistant. You say, well, what do you guys want? A new library, a playground? We've got, we've got a budget here. We can do those things. So at the end of the day, people know they're going to get something approved. In, um, you know, developers know they're going to get something approved, but um, this is really not, when you start comparing the extra money you're getting from those two or three buildings versus the overall. Now, I haven't done the research. I think it'd be a great project for a university to look at, to actually evaluate, are these, are these undeveloped lots trading at a discount in relation to completed buildings? Really easy study to do. You could look at other cities where they don't follow the practice. Um, but um, so why is it so popular? Well, it's, as I said, it's popular because this is one of the ways elected officials get reelected, because they can go out and talk about things. And most citizens don't take the time to think this deeply about something. Well, where's that money coming from? I mean, here they're saying, well, we transferred some density, but it's coming from somewhere. Um, and as it happens, it's coming from your, your tax rolls. Now, this practice is only done in a few places in America. 
because there's only a few places where this kind of pressure to develop exists, and the market seems almost limitless. You find the same thing in Toronto, Calgary, parts of Calgary, and Vancouver. Vancouver's been doing it for years. It's a very small, you know, it's a very tight little community with not a lot of area to build. Uh, well, Vancouver got caught a few years back because of some problems in terms of uh, unfair um, practices. And, you know, in the communities around here that do this, they don't like to talk a lot about these proffers. Um, citizens always want to know, well, you know, how does the negotiation work and who, um, you know, you know, how much are they providing, blah, blah. And, you know, it sort of happens behind closed doors. Vancouver's been forced to be a little more upfront about it. Um, but um, there are a number of other problems, too. From a developer's standpoint, it's difficult to do an accurate pro forma uh, ahead of time because you don't know that amount of money you're going to have to pay at a certain point. The bigger issue, and this is a legal one, is that because each deal gets cut at a different time in a different market, with a different developer, there's no standard to measure it against. So a developer might say, well, I'm being discriminated against because they pushed me that much harder than that other guy a year ago, and I know that you know, the, the electeds really like Stan a lot more, and that's why they went easy on him. So it opens you up to a lot of vulnerability there. Uh, and you know, as it happens, the Canadians actually have a, a, a better system. They actually have something called development charges that they, they levy across the board. They assume that property taxes are only going to pay a certain amount of the cost of running government, maybe 92%, and that the remaining 8% they're going to cover through this thing called development charges. And these are put together every five to seven years by a committee that basically determines this menu of charges. So a single family house will be 15,000 uh, inside the green belt, 23,000 outside. Rural unserviced, 11,000. This whole menu, if it's an apartment, it's about half that. But, but it's standardized. There are consistent charges. And they even tell you how the money gets spent. So out of $15 per square foot, $7.60 goes to roads, $1.55 for sewer, and so on. It's an interesting system, and you find this all across Canada. And again, it's focused not just on capital charges like our... Um, uh, our um, why am I blanking on them? Impact fees. It's focused on life cycle costs. So, the, you know, the menu approach addresses the issue of discrimination, but I would still argue it's not a great way to build tax base because, again, you're, you're, you have this problem of people are going to take that number, that one-time number that they're going to pay when they decide to develop, and it's suppressing the overall value of the tax base every single year. Not a good thing. What I would prefer to see would be form-based codes, where you ask for what you want. And so again, by, by simply stating, okay, maximum of this story is minimum of this, you're going to be somewhere in the middle, everybody knows what their property's worth. You get rid of the brain damage of, of forcing people to go through this very difficult, uncertain process, and you basically increase the value of the whole tax base. And you have the rules stated up front as to what you want. So I guess the lesson here, if tonight's theme is follow the money, I would also say follow best practices too, both in terms of urban design and also uh, in terms of tax issues. And in the same issue of the magazine, it's a wonderful article by um, Michael Pagano, a professor uh, in Illinois, where he looks at different forms of taxation. And one of the things I picked up in all this is that um, you know, the urban form that tends to result from certain forms of taxation is a great set of diagrams 
done by Steve Price, but it basically shows that when you're dealing with property tax, it tends to aggregate value near the center in your downtown. What we've been talking about reinforces good urbanism where you have a compact center and it feathers out, whereas when you're a sales tax dependent city, what you tend to get is a lot of development moving to the edges of town where you're trying to grab customers from nearby uh, municipalities but offload some of the transit, some of the transportation uh, infrastructure improvements to people that aren't getting any of the taxes, which is a kind of a sneaky thing to do. You have to do all the improvements on your side of the line, but those other people who don't get any of the benefits, they have to upgrade the streets. Ha-ha on them. Uh, but it doesn't really make nice places. And income tax, <laughs> we couldn't really figure out what was going on there. But interesting things to think about. Thinking in this way kind of opens up a whole new world uh, of thinking. Now, I wanted to end the talk, you know, I've had a good run over 20 years. You know, I, I sat down with the folks who did this new urbanism thing. I said, you know, you all need to get a better name for this. And we, we cooked up the name New Urbanism and started the CNU. And I got involved with form-based codes. I see another thing coming that I'm as excited about as I was excited about those first two. And I'm going to tell you about it. Um, it includes the revenue piece we've just talked about. It includes form-based codes. Uh, and it also includes a lot of emerging technologies in computer software that are basically allowing you to grow cities in a petri dish. It's something called procedural software where the rules are literally embedded in these objects that you drag onto the screen. And there's a, I had a chance to visit with a Swiss company a few months ago called Smarter Better Cities that are, that are doing these things. Um, City Engine is a product of Esri and a lot of your local governments have contracts with them. So starting with this chart and what, what Joe did, uh, basically taking those bars and turning them vertical and projecting them up, and you go to the scale of a whole metropolis. Well, this is not a metropolis. It's Wilmington, North Carolina. And this is a heat map that very quickly shows you where the money's coming in. You've got two oceanfront communities that are kicking butt, and you've got downtown. And all this red and orange, this is stuff that's losing money. This is stuff that is not happy. And you know, somehow in the balance between the two, you're, you're, you know, local government's balancing the books. But this becomes a very powerful tool for government to see where its income's coming from. And I believe that these kinds of programs are going to become more prevalent. Here's um, an article in a more recent issue of Government Finance Review. The stodgy magazine is suddenly becoming a great uh, uh, clearinghouse for some exciting new approaches. But a number of MPOs around the U.S. are developing these fiscal impact models that you can go on and begin to do some, some crude modeling. So here's one in the Tallahassee region where you dial in, you know, what kind of thing are you building? Is it dense CBD or rural or somewhere in between? You, you know, you, you, you dial in the average trip length and it has some default settings. There's the estimated VMT per household per year, which is linked to something called um, uh, CNT's H plus T index. I'll introduce that in just a minute. But basically, this gives you some idea of are you going to be sucking wind on revenue side, or is this going to be a profitable project? There's a really great one called uh, IMPACS, I-M-P-A-C-S, uh, that SACOG has created. Very complicated and not that user-friendly for non-planners. But here's a program that just hit that is a really great interface. I'm going to walk you through it. In, in New Hampshire, <coughs> you can figure out the taxes for a proposed development. It's their cost of sprawl index. Uh, the first thing you do is you select your municipality and you dial through alphabetical list. So let's go to Bristol. 
If any of you know Neil Pierce, this is real close to his summer home, like right there. But we're going to go to this town. We're going to highlight these squares. Each square that I highlight is 40 acres. Um, the next step is to assign buildings. So we go to these sliders, and we, they, we start out with everything at zero. We dial in 80 units. So when I dial in 80 units, look at the number here, acres remaining drops to 177. We do a few more. We're going to have 50, 150 single-family detached, 80 townhouses, 160 multifamily that are four to eight to a building, 290 bigger buildings, and then some commercial, 16,000 square feet of retail with an FAR of 0.04, some office, some industrial, boom. You hit this next, give me the results. So you hit the results. It shows you on pie charts what your development is made of. Um, you scroll down further. Here you are again. The squares, this is the infrastructure required. You've got four miles of roads, water, sewer lines, 5.81. Pretty cool. Um, here's all your additional population, 768 people, 203 school kids. Those are the expensive ones. Uh, you scroll down further. Here are your, some of your impact costs. Your school costs are 2,400,000, blah, blah. Emergency services, highway maintenance, water, sewer. Bottom line, your total costs, 3.8 million. Your property taxes paid, 1.2 million. Uh, net difference that the municipality is out is over 2 million, 2.5, 2.6 almost. Now, imagine this tool in the hands of NIMBYs who used to say, oh no, it's too dense, it's too, too bulky, and what local government would do is they would reduce the size of the development. But the problem is they're still probably bringing the same pipes, they're bringing smaller pipes to the site, but they're still digging the hole. So there's still a lot of money in infrastructure outlays with less money coming back. This is a powerful tool. Um, so let's go to another, let's try it again, see if we do better. Let's go right in the heart of Manchester, biggest city in the state. Here we are, we're going to build right on top of the freeway. I'm not taking any chances this time. I want to see positive cash flow. So we dial in, forget single family. We're going to go straight to the biggest 600 units here. We're going to do 6,000 retail, 20,000 office. Boom, there we go. This is what it looks like on the chart. Uh, here we are again. We, you know, we're less miles of road. I can't quite figure out why we need so much road if we're sitting on top of an interstate, but there's probably have to weave around. Here's our total population. We're packing them in, 126 school kids. Um, did better this time, but we're still negative. So here we are at 1.8 million. Our taxes are a little under half. Our negative is a little under half. We're getting closer to 50-50. Uh, and I still haven't gotten a positive result out of it. It's an interesting program. It's crude, but it shows you what's coming. This is the world that's coming. Very exciting to me. Now, it's something I call public software. Has anybody seen this H plus T index? This is, oh, you need to get on this. So just remember that if, to Google it, CNT, C is in Charles, N is in Nancy, T is in Thomas, space H plus T. This is from the Center for Neighborhood Technology. What they're doing here is they're challenging a typical statistic about affordability that says if you're 30%, if you're less than 30% of area median income, you're affordable. So all the yellow here is affordable. The blue is not. This is Denver. I think we're, oh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Is that right? Uh, let me go to this one. It's easier. Here we are in Denver. So all the yellow is considered affordable. The blue, some suburban stuff is expensive. You got some in-town stuff that's expensive. 
But when you add in transportation costs, which are supposed to be between 15 and 18 percent of area median income, so now the question is what areas are below 45 percent combined, whereas here your yellow is about 40 percent of the region, it suddenly drops to about 10 percent. So if you want to be affordable, you've got to really pick and find these places that are somewhat close in, served by public transit, but um, uh, uh, also not high-end housing stock. So this is really important stuff, in my opinion. I call it public software. Why is it important? Well, I'm going to introduce another term tonight. I know we can do better than this one. This is just my you know, first idea. PFPM, Place Focused Performance Mapping. So like this, something where, you know, it's like show me on a map which are the regions that are earning their way and which are the ones that we're having to subsidize, show it to me. Or for instance here in terms of energy performance, this is some work by my Swiss friends where they're basically looking building by building at, and I don't know quite what the red, the green, and the yellow is, but these are basically telling us the energy performance of different buildings. Are we at a density where one building is helping another building Getting, giving it a free ride on costs. Are we dense enough that we could move to district energy, for example, and get savings that way? So this is a program available today called Energy Count. Um, or mobility, issues of walkability and intersection connectivity, public transit. Um, you know, one of the things we're seeing around the country is that a lot of states are saying, you know, we're not just going to give money everywhere. You know, Maryland was the first years ago with their priority investment areas. California now has something called the transit priority area. And so if you want to get infrastructure money, you have to be in an area within a half mile of high quality transit, rail stop, blah, 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 15 minute headways. I'm not so sure about this 2035. That tells me, well, it's politics as usual. Because every municipality is going to say, oh, look at our plans. Look at the things we're going to be doing. Nobody has any money, but they're all claiming to be doing all this great stuff. So, you know, here's Sacramento, SACOG, and, and they're showing that half mile you know, it looks like some good walkable fabric here. I see a freeway. I see a big arterial. They're saying, well, we've spent a lot of money in infrastructure, so let's, let's follow that with new money. So it's all logical. But I want to take it out of the subjectivity of politics. I want to get with data that can't be corrupted, that, 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 that is going to be objective and clear. So I believe that the future comp plans of America are going to probably be driven by these PFPMs, by these layers of data. Um, and, you know, typically today comp plans have a lot of data in them, but it's not, not really used strategically. You know, when we create plans, these big state plans like Envision Tomorrow in Utah or the California, Vision California that Calthorpe's doing in relation to their greenhouse gas laws, um, we use a lot of data as we construct these scenarios and evaluate what kind of regional plan do we want, but the problem is those plans stand alone with big circles and rectangles, but they don't directly connect to the zoning. So as you build up the plan, you have data, but as you monitor the performance of the plan to actually say, are these places performing consistent with the, the, the expectations, there's no way to see that. So I believe that the future comp plan will actually be connected uh, integrally uh, in terms of performance issues, uh, probably um, pervious uh, uh, ground. Uh, will be in a, there'll be a whole series of these layers, and we'll put them in place not because we think it's a good idea, but because we have no choice, but because we've run out of money, because we've so fouled our water system that we'll have to do different things. 
data won't just be used to decorate the plan, it will be part of the backbone of the plan. So, um, you know, I really think this is where we're going in the future. I think it's happening sooner than we expect. I can't be here at APA headquarters, or second headquarters, without doing a plug for an initiative that I'm um, leading on behalf of Congress for New Urbanism called New Urbanism in Local Government. Um, we just had a meeting in Raleigh to talk about um, comp plans and some of these ideas was put forward. I know APA has their own comp plan study program as well. I like to think we, we might be a little further out on that cutting edge. And you know, for those of you who think new urbanism is just a bunch of people looking at, at you know, old style buildings, um, we're really you know, trying to use data in, in, in fresh ways that really drive us towards a, 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 a sustainable future, not just environmentally, but economically too. So here's where we end. Um, I'm going up to Buffalo. Haven't been there in ages. And our initiative is going to meet, and I invite all of you who are interested in, in any part of what I've just talked about. This is all going to be a focus of that initiative. So I'd love, love for you to join the effort. So what else is there? There you go. Okay, thanks, Peter. <laughs> We're a little over an hour, so I'll take just a couple questions. Are there any from the audience? Thanks. Hi. Um, how do you feel about uh, the mechanism to increase density um, through uh, uh, like a tax mechanism such as um, in the assessment of property tax, assessing value separate from structure and you know, weighing those differently to manipulate um, density and, for example, weighing structure lower in order to increase uh, developers' uh, drive to? Are you talking about Henry George? Yes, actually. Everybody, who's familiar with that, or who's not familiar with the term George's taxation? It's a wonderful idea. Henry George, a guy who ran for mayor of New York about 100 plus years ago, basically said that we should tax land and not buildings. And the basic idea is that downtown, where there's a lot of municipal infrastructure, you know, the stadium, the city hall, the, the, you know, the, the, the big central park, that you pay for the privilege of being near all that stuff in high taxes. And what that does, and so if you own land and it's sitting there as a parking lot, uh, you better darn well redevelop it as something that's got productive economic uses because, uh, because if you don't, you're going to get killed by the taxes. Um, and what it does is it takes the pressure off places at the edges. What it does is it makes the market a far greater determinant of what happens than regulations. Um, so I like it. It's got a strong connection to what I've been talking about. Um, the, um, you know, places that have tried it, I mean, Sydney, Australia, you walk around, you will not see a single surface parking lot in downtown. You just can't afford to tie up land that way. Developers like it because it uses their creativity to achieve value. Old money, old families that keep their, their wealth in the form of land don't like it because it forces them to do something with it. Or if they can't think of what to do, they've got to sell it to somebody who can. So it means that land becomes not a great way to, to hold your wealth. Um, it's, you know, the, a lot of the problem, the biggest problem with Georgist thinking is that <laughs> the adherence to it over the, over the century, uh, there's a bunch of people that are kind of, you know, a little wacky. It's got some baggage. There's a lot of um, real hardcore zealots. Um, you know, Lincoln Land Institute, for example, was actually founded by a Georgist. And there was a huge lawsuit a, few, a decade or so ago because they strayed from 
from the, the mission. And, uh, you know, for quite a while it was considered not a very um, chic thing. But it's sort of coming back into vogue. And there's a good chapter on it in Jim Kunstler's book, Home From Nowhere, called uh, an incredibly, I forget the name, but it's like a, a, a boring chapter about something that's important. But um, <laughs> Any other questions? Um, so going back to the first half of the presentation uh, where you were looking at the comparisons and the, the revenue sources for property taxes, I'm wondering, you know, that 17-story building in Sarasota, how different the math looks if it's not entirely composed of million-dollar condos and how in a, in a situation where you're trying to maximize revenue, you, you can make these wonderful places that aren't just for people you, who can afford a million You asked a very condo. good question. Thank you. Because if I, if I let you all go without answering it, you would have left with a, um, a false perception. And this, I was reminded of this by my old boss, Jim Lay. Churches, um, a school, there's lots of buildings in our communities that don't pay a nickel in taxes. And, you know, this was brought up to me by Dina Belzer. You know, you, not everything's going to be earning out at that high rate. And you probably don't want one uniform screen that says if you don't earn at, up to this level, you can't build. You probably want a range of screens, but even things like executive housing, even things like big houses out in Loudoun for Fortune 500 executives, if local government makes the decision that those people are key because they're going to bring a lot of jobs to the region and you want those jobs and they need, you know, even, even millionaires need affordability. Uh, if that's what local government decides, if that's what the citizens decide is important, so be it. So you need, you need different levels. As I said, you're not, it's not about making, turning everything into a 17-story building. It's about snipping off that end of the bell curve that is just essentially a blank check for bad development. And the local government's been writing those blank checks for, for decades without questioning it. And I think what, what, what I've learned is that this approach appeals to two kinds of communities. It appeals to really thoughtful, you know, upper-end, um, oftentimes sort of suburban communities that really think about this stuff. And, and by, you know, by the way, a reminder, Arlington apparently back in the 60s thought long and hard about the policy of putting the freeway down the middle of Clarendon Boulevard and, you know, ran all kinds of numbers again and again and again and proved to themselves that it would give them great return, and it did. But that, that's an example of that kind of thoughtful community and then at the other end of the spectrum, communities that are prey to stupid silver bullet ideas where a developer comes along and says, oh, you're going to make millions of dollars on this. The ability to do the analytics and quickly rule out stupid things that desperate communities latch onto. I was up in upstate New York town a few years back where they were about to build a crazy kind of shopping center theme park thing that Hillary Clinton, of all people, was backing. Thankfully, the community passed on it. They just couldn't get the dollars together, but it just had loser written all over it. But the community was so desperate for the revenue that they, that they, they were ready to go for it. So I think that would be the hope that, um, again, without the fanfare of a big charrette and a fancy design team and all that. And again, there's still no better way to great, create great urbanism than to do all those three best practices of great urban design, um, great you know, form-based codes, and a great public process. That will still give you your best place. But for all the communities that can't afford it, that just need a simple screen to rule out dumb things, this is, is my candidate. So, Well, you all have been great uh, in terms of sitting still after a long day and you're going to have to trudge home in the snow. 
So thank you for your interest. And please feel free to contact me if I can be helpful or uh, if you want me to send you the PDF of that issue of, of GFR. And hopefully you copied down the info. Thanks, Peter. If you could join me in welcome, or thanking him. <laughs>